Welcome, welcome everyone. This is Local Bag and you're listening to No Police Radio here on KDVS 90.3 FM. Just a quick list disclaimer before we get the programming started. The following views presented in this hour are not the views of KDVS, KDVS sponsors, or the University of California. I just want to say welcome. Welcome to No Police Radio. Uh, if you are new to our program, uh, you can hear us every other week discussing all things abolition, from tuition to the prison industrial complex, everything that has to go to make way for a free university. Whoops. <laughs> we'll feature conversations with guest organizers, abolitionist scholars, and people who have taken part in the university's radical history, all with an eye towards how we get free. We have really exciting programming for you all today, but for now, here's some music. Antigua gloria si ves Aquí se encajó mi canto Como dijera Violeta Guitarra trabajadora Con olor a primavera de rico ni cosa que se parezca mi canto es de los andarios para alcanzar las estrellas que el canto tiene sentido Cuando palpiten las venas Del que morirá cantando Las verdades verdaderas No las lisonjas fugaces Ni las famas extranjeras Sino el canto de una loca Siempre será canción nueva. Siempre será canción nueva. 
siempre será canción nueva. Hello, welcome back to No Police Radio. Um, quick, uh, our host today are Roger and Odette. Um, quick content warning, any two hosts you hear on NPR, No Police Radio, are part of a larger group of organizers working to abolish police and prisons on campus locally, nationwide, and worldwide. We spend a lot of time thinking about these issues in community with each other, and we know how difficult they can be. So we want to make sure listeners know that any police-related topic will inevitably include violence because police are violent into that issue. That is a content warning for what is ahead. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Odette. I have swanned in to have a conversation with my good friend Roger, and we are here hosting No Police Radio today. Thank you for that content warning, Roger. We were just talking about that a little bit. Um, so uh, I am just going to give us all like a quick summary of what we are talking about today. Um, and so today we are thinking about the question of how these abolitionist perspectives that we use to kind of structure all of our thoughts in the show, how do we sort of scale them down so that we can use them to look at a place like a specific university campus like UC Davis? And then how can we also scale them up to address policing, not just at the university, not just in the city of Davis, not just in the United States, but actually at an international level and like how those kind of very, very local and really, really global levels um, work together. So that's our like ambitious goal for today. Um, and so uh, as a way of getting started, of getting that conversation started, in a minute, we're going to... Um, update you briefly on something that was relevant to our last show, which if you listen to that show, we had a couple of really great guests from UC San Diego who talked about labor action and how it's being repressed there um, right now. And we have more news about that. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. Then uh, we are going to explore in a little more depth the way that university administrators and other kinds of bosses function as cops and how they work with cops. And we're going to use UCD as an example, we'll have a guest who's going to call in to talk about that with us. And so that's going to be our sort of way of thinking about abolition at this really local university level. And then we're going to move way out into a much, much bigger perspective um, to look at what is happening with policing internationally by talking about um, what is happening uh, on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean in France right now and the struggles against policing going on there. Um, so should we take a quick musical break, local or? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, so we're gonna take a quick break um, from our producer and then we're going to uh, get started with the content of the show. And uh, great to be here and yeah, we will be back soon. Silencio del monte va preparando un adiós. La palabra que se dirá y memoria será. Y 
perdió el hombre de este siglo allí su nombre y su apellido son fusil contra fusil se quebró la cáscara del viento al sur y sobre la primera cruz despierta Just a quick update from what we were talking about last show. Um, so we were talking about the 60-plus grad students that got student conduct charges. Um, the university has decided to escalate their repression, and on June 29th, three grad students were arrested at their homes by university police and held in custody at the county jail for over 12 hours. They've been charged with felony conspiracy to commit a crime and felony vandalism over $400. Um, These charges stem from a union protest uh, in which they used washable paint and chalk to write slogans. The university claims that this washable paint and chalk cost them $12,000 to remove. Um, And this is very clearly just an example of university repression. Um, They're trying to trump up charges, trying to scare these union activists. Um, And some of these activists, they're rallying back. And so today at noon, they rallied outside the San Diego Central Courthouse uh, to demand that UCSD drop the charges. Um, So we're going to have our guest on soon, but we'll go back to another musical break.
contas com o bem que tu me fazes A contas com o mal porque passei Com tantas guerras que travei Já não sei fazer as pazes São flores aos bilhões entre ruínas Meu peito feito o campo de batalha Cada alvorada que me ensinas Oiro em pó que o vento espalha Cá dentro inquietação, inquietação É só inquietação, inquietação Porque não sei, porque não sei Porque não sei ainda Há sempre qualquer coisa que está para acontecer Qualquer coisa que eu devia perceber Porque não sei, porque não sei Porque não sei ainda Quantas promessas eu faria se as cumprisse todas juntas Não largues esta mão no turvalinho, pois falta sempre pouco para chegar Eu não meti o barco ao mar para ficar pelo caminho Cá dentro inquietação, inquietação, é só inquietação, inquietação Porque não sei, porque não sei, porque não sei ainda Há sempre qualquer coisa que está para acontecer, qualquer coisa que eu devia perceber porque não sei, porque não sei, porque não sei ainda Cá dentro inquietação, inquietação, é só inquietação, inquietação Porque não sei, mas sei, é que não sei ainda Há sempre qualquer coisa que está para acontecer, qualquer coisa que eu devia perceber Porque não sei, mas sei, é que não sei ainda Há sempre qualquer coisa que eu tenho que fazer, qualquer coisa que eu devia resolver Porque não sei, mas sei, que essa coisa Welcome back, everybody. This is Odette, and um, my co-host, Roger, and I are happy to be talking to you on No Police Radio. I kind of feel like at this point I might need, like, an, an, an even more uh, sort of precise nickname, like Muffles, because I've been, like, masked this entire time for various reasons. And when I hear myself on the show recordings, I'm always very aware that I am talking through a mask, and I sound a little different. Um, let me just ID the song that we just heard, which... Um, Portuguese, a language I don't have, but I am going to give it a try anyway. Inquietação um, by Jose Mario Branco, and the album is Ser Solidario. Well, we know what Solidario is. Um, so uh, yeah, so that was our that was our last song, and so uh, we are now moving into one of our very favorite topics: our Chancellor Gary May, who we always like to just make sure that everybody you know has the most kind of. Um, up-to-date and accurate information about, like, who Gary really is, what kinds of uh, nonsense he's been up to lately, um, and, you know, and how, if you want to think about a free university, you want to think about a university that doesn't have policing because it doesn't need policing, um, 
where and whether someone like Gary fits into all that, you know, um, and how we want to understand him in those terms. So I'm going to turn things over to Roger, who is uh, who has a guest on the phone, our very dear comrade Nestor, who um, has spent a lot of time thinking about um, the about Gary May and, uh, you know, and his various shenanigans and has some some really useful and interesting stuff to say about him. So I will hand it over to Roger. Hello, Nestor. Can you hear us? Hi, hi, Roger. Hi, Odette. Great to great to talk to you guys. Okay, so just to start off, like on the show a lot, you've probably heard we always like to talk about refer to Gary May as the head cop or like the top cop. Um, head could, cop Gary May. Yeah. Could you uh, explain to listeners sort of what it means to say an administrator is a cop? Yeah, sure. Um, I think there's a lot there um, and a lot of ways to kind of approach the question. Um, you know, one of the one of the big ones, the sort of broad question, um, is something that it's similar to when we talk about police, similar to when we talk about politicians or bosses, is just the question of um, are the actions of this person or, you know, more, more concretely, this role, this sort of social role, um, are the actions that flow from that role um, challenging or upholding the regimes of you know, all the, the oppressions that we're faced with in society, right? So the regimes of capital accumulation, of white supremacy and racial, racialized violence, gender and sex oppression, are these being challenged or reinforced um, and upheld? by the actions of these uh, these institutions or these roles within them, right? Um, and so I think that's a good starting point to kind of look at, like, oh, you know, it, it becomes a little clear, more clear there about the way that, um, uh, especially someone who has a very affable public, uh, or att- attempts an affable sort of public persona, uh, like Mr. May, um, you know, is, is a cop, right? Um and, uh, you know, I think what you were talking about, uh, and, and this goes all throughout the UC, of course. Um, uh, I don't know if we're going to be talking about other, uh, other chancellors and presidents as well, if we have time to get into all that. But I thought uh, the story you just mentioned at UCSD is a perfect example of administrators being cops, right? The way that um, this washable paint and chalk is suddenly this assault on property and these egregious charges are being levied at people, right? Within the context of a labor struggle that's ongoing, right? This is the, the work of the police, right? Maintaining these divisions, being against labor, um, being uh, against you know, people fighting back for that kind of, um, that kind of uh, freedom that's not just nominal freedom, but like economic, uh, economic uh, freedom and equity and um, yeah, and especially at UCSD, we see that, um, like, it was the university police, not the county police, the university police that took the, these students in and did the initial arrest. Um, right. But, yeah, now that we have this, like, framework of sort of what we're talking about, of how, like, administrators can be cops, um, there's a lot of, you know, scandals here, scandals there, anecdotal pieces of information about things Gary have done that are bad. Um, how can we think about those specifically in sort of that framework, that abolitionist context that we're discussing on the show? Yeah, so 
Um, and, and do feel I free think, to regale us with bad things that Gary has done if you want to. <laughs> yeah, sure. So uh, one of the the main things um, that Gary gets catches some flack for, I think this is, I think this is still on his wiki page. Um, he's on the board of um, Lados, um, mm-hmm. which is a defense contractor. I think they have contracts in border control, um, or you know. Uh, I don't even want to use that language, border control. You know, if we're going to be talking about abolition, you know, we're also talking about borders and the policing and repression and violence at the border, right? Um, there's also, I know, and anyway, so um, he's been on the board of Lados since uh, 2015 or so, um, and he's caught some flag from that. Some some people have, have criticized him, Um or making money off that, um, in addition to the salary he's pulling at the UC. Um, uh, and then uh, the other thing that you've probably been over this on the show already, but he was um, downplaying COVID a bit at certain points. Um, I think he called it a four-day flu or a four-day head cold at one point. Um, and really... Um, and then also um, there's Aggie Square, which is a whole other can of worms. And I don't know a ton about Aggie Square, it's that whole thing he's been pushing, that um, it's a whole uh, campus extension redevelopment thing going on in, um, in Sacramento. Um, but in talking about, uh, Roger, your question about, you know, pulling these actions together within a certain context, um, you know, it's, it's, again, like doing this sort of work, right? If you look at Gary's actions as beholden to a certain logic, right, beholden to the logic of profit, beholden to shareholders, right? We have yet another boss, um, a person in power, and the effects of their actions are sort of flowing more or less one way, right, in terms of who's benefiting from them. Um, so with the, the COVID stuff, um, you know, you see someone who's kind of acting within the, you know, throughout the, the government um, as throughout the pandemic uh, and all the stress and confusion that everyone was going through. You know, we had a lot of back and forth and changing policies from the government, which, you know, is understandable on one level, right? It's sort of, it's it's um, it's a, a dire situation. Um, but... You know, there's that anxiety and that kind of hand-wringing that you see it saw from politicians and from administrators like Gary May, where they're sort of like, okay, like, we have this sort of policy right now. We have this, you know, there's just this eagerness to get back to business as usual, right? This eagerness to to get back to um, the smooth functioning of, of the system, right? Um, and who's at risk from that? That's putting um, people at risk. Um, that's putting... Uh, especially immunocompromised people at risk, um, and then, um, and then more generally, you have things like the um, the UC the strike that went on last fall. Um, grad student workers um, went on strike um, to get a better contract. Uh, there's a lot to be said about that in terms of whether that went well or not. Um, I think there were a lot of problems with the, the deal that went through, but like now throughout the UC, there are, uh, 
the UC is still trying to renege on um, on these promises that they've made mm-hmm. and are still not trying to pay people uh, uh, what what the contract stipulates. Um, and so an administrator's role in that is, of course, to suppress dissent, to, you know, I mean, if we were being very generous, we would say it was to keep the peace, right? But that peace is one in which people are being uh like in San Diego, people are being arrested and charged for, you know, chalk graffiti, right? Yeah. Can I just jump in for one second? Yeah. I mean, I think that's really, yeah, it's a useful, I mean, I think the way you've sort of laid this out for us and for our listeners is really useful because I think one of the things that, one of the points that really drives home is the way that like the function of an administrator um, like Gary May or other chancellors or university presidents is to kind of, um, confirm what is for a lot of people already a bunch of assumptions and expectations about like what smooth functioning is, right? You use that phrase, smooth functioning, right? Because, you know, if you really think about it, you know, what happens in San Diego means that like smooth functioning means paying $12,000 to like refinish the, you know, the front of the building. Smooth functioning is not like making sure that grad workers are being paid, you know, um, enough to be able to live and eat, you know, um, while they're doing teaching. And so like, you know, if you if you think about it that way, it's it's absurd, right? Like, I mean, that the first thing is smooth functioning. The second one is not, you know, you know, when most, you know, I think most of us would reverse those things. But there, you know, but but I think administrators are paddling really hard under the surface to like make it seem as though, you know, um, the functioning the way it is, is what we, you know, is rational, is logical, you know, um, is smooth, as you as you were saying. I think that's, that's really helpful. And if I can just harp for another moment on the, the UC San Diego situation. There was also something in um, in the administration's response where they were talking about how, you know, it was a $12,000 worth of damage. Um, it ruined some special coating on the building that was designed to, you know, um, you know resist the marine air. Um, and, and then, on, on <laughs> additionally, it mentioned... There was a planned, you know, event uh, there, and it had to be moved because of this graffiti, right? Uh-huh. And so it was like, oh, oh, no, it, you know, it had to be moved, that it's so awful, because otherwise people would have been there holding their event and seen mm-hmm. the phrase living wage now, right? Mm-hmm. That could not have happened. So they had to move it. They were forced to move it. Yeah. Um, I just thought that was ridiculous. Um but no, I think that's really helpful, um, and it also sort of ties into this whole other um, uh, function that, that administrators uh, perform, which is the free speech question, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the the sort of waffling, the upholding, the championing of free speech um, under very, very um, sort of suspect and inconsistent sort of um, circumstances. Um, that some people are allowed that speech or de facto uh, have louder speech (laughs) and are allowed to have louder speech. And then this sort of, um, uh, Roger, I think uh, you you noted um, this sort of um, uh, idea of, like, you know, civility, right, Um, that's leveraged against people that are not, uh, not speaking in the correct way. 
Yeah, um, Gary May does that a lot. And I also just wanted to note for the listeners, you were saying that like Gary is on the board of Lido's. Gary May makes 325000 from sitting on that board of the defense contracting. So not like lunch money. He makes some serious dough from that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, like... Yeah. On that free speech, free speech issue, free speech issue. Um, sorry, uh, the language of like he always has that like he he uses like a rhetoric of like civility and decorum to sort of like police what like the language people use. Like, oh, you can be upset, but not upset in this way, or can't we do it through these means through this process in which I have the control and power? in? could you sort of talk about that? Yeah, that's that's a really thank you for teeing that up because that's a great point. Um, you know, uh, back in in March, um, Charlie Kirk, who's a right wing grifter, uh, total transphobe, um, uh, he's the what is he the founder or the president, whatever. Uh, Turning Point USA is the organization, which is a completely it's a it's a non grassroots, you know, funded propaganda organization uh for the far right um charlie kirk was uh spoke on the uc davis campus back in march and there were protests ahead of time a lot of people calling for him to not be um given a platform on the university of california campus and uh gary may came out with a with um a statement that was just you know, utterly uh, uh, inadequate, right? Um, And doing this exact kind of thing, talking about, you know, um, the way that, I mean, he he made it clear that, like, oh, I think this person's views are abhorrent, and, you know, I disagree with them, et cetera, et cetera, Um, which, you know, uh, and I get it. Like, I'm not here saying that, like, oh, we should have free speech for people that as long as they're, they're nice. I'm not. I'm not trying to do the same thing <laughs> that we accuse Gary of doing, right? Um, but within this context of like far right uh, agitation and um, this sort of um, this threat of transphobic violence, there, the idea that this person is required or that we somehow have to give this person a platform is ridiculous. Um, and so then, when you have like. Gary May doing this sort of hand-wringing, yes, this person's terrible, but I have to. I'm legally required to let him speak here, which, as far as I know, is not true. Um, in that context, then, who who is being called upon to be civil? And, like you, like you point out, that that in in these, um, if, if student activists, right, we're talking about student activists, we're talking about worker um workers striking workers um people who are challenging these fundamental structures undergirding the university's functioning those are the people that are being told yes you also just like charlie kirk you have a platform but it has to be done in a way that is really what he's saying is it has to be done in a way that's not going to actually make change Mm -hmm. or not make any change that's not a um what would you call it, a sort of, like, perfunctory sort of, like, uh, policy change or a feel-good kind of um, concession, right? Yeah. 
or not lose money, you know. And the other thing, too, is yeah. that I think that, I mean, you know, the like TPUSA and Charlie Kirk, like their whole thing is that they're sort of kinder, gentler fascists, right? Like they wear their little yeah. polo shirts and ties and stuff. And so it's, you know, I think it's related to what we were talking about before, this, you know, um, the work that goes into camouflaging violence as something else, you know, so that when, yeah. you know, so that when student protesters actually want to try to, you know, um, do something that's going to disrupt, like that gets marked as violence, you know, um, while Charlie Kirk can say, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just standing here peacefully in my, you know, in my suit. And somehow that is not violence. When in fact, you know, the presence of someone like that on a campus implicitly is more, you know, is 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 violent in a much more substantial way. You know, um, it's violent right. towards other people, you know, not towards property. Um, the other, I, there was one other thing I wanted to just bring up briefly and ask you about, Nestor, because um, I wanted to try to connect it to some things we're talking about later. I think something else um, that, you know, that's been on my mind is, uh, is, is the, the university administration's role in surveilling, you know, people who are um, part of the university community. Uh, I know there was an article recently about like how all of a sudden these little kind of these little instruments sort of appeared stuck to people's chairs and under people's desks in one of the labs here that were actually their motion sensors that are recording, like how much time are you spending working, how much time, you know, and just the idea that wow. um, yeah. all, you know, the the way that like we all feel very conscious, you know, anybody who works for the university has a university email address is very conscious that like, you know, there's real limits on what you can say in those kinds of emails. I think, you know, and anybody who does any kind of like anti-repression work, you know, I think inevitably just feels constantly surveilled, you know, um, and that is, so I wonder, I mean, I, I, I was wondering if you could sort of, you know, bring that into the discussion of like free, you know, free expression and its, its repression. Yeah, I mean, at, at Davis, so there's a there's a great article, Cops by Any Other Name, that's um, that's up on that website. Um, I didn't I didn't write that one. Um, some of our comrades did write, um, but that really goes into that um, really well um, because right at UC Davis, you know, we have a history of this of surveillance um, done in a very like with a very happy, friendly face. Um, with uh, um, departments like the um, was it the student expression coordinators, the Center for Student Involvement, um, student affairs monitors, right? So uh, administrators that were tasked with, you know, uh, what did it say on the on the the job title? Probably something like facilitating student expression or facilitating freedom of expression, but meant very concretely. Uh, making sure that uh, the admin were keeping an eye on um, students, particularly for those moments when protest would exceed the bounds of, of civility and civil discourse, and, you know, which means, right, threatening to actually make some sort of difference, to actually create some sort of space within stu- where students could come together, really think about these ideas together, or take sort of material steps, occupying a building to um, to create the uni- recreate the university as something that that serves people better, right? Mm-hmm. And so these groups, um, surveillance groups, um, were keeping tabs on students, and that was a means to leverage, you know, the sort of first um, punitive arm of the university, student judicial affairs, right? Um, before the sort of next step would be. Um, getting the, the the state more directly involved, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that the university has 
that admin has a, a consistent interest in. Um, always, always under the guise of the sort of double speak, right? Community safety or or making sure that people are protesting safely or whatever. Um, it's really it's always very infantilizing, right? Um, but but that's just the veneer. It's an infantilizing veneer, but there's this threat of real uh, tangible repression right under it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Roger, do you think we should take like a short, like a little musical break before we get to the last? And I know Roger has a couple more questions to kind of ask Nestor to think about what could, you know, what it would look like if it was different. Um, so if it's okay, a local, is that all right? We'll take a little break, give Nestor a chance to rest up a bit, and we will be right back. Viva la quinta brigada, rumba la rumba la rumba la, viva la quinta brigada, rumba la rumba la rumba la, que nos cubrirá de glorias, ay Carmela, ay Carmela, que nos cubrirá de glorias, ay Carmela, ay Carmela. Luchamos contra los moros, rumba la rumba la rumba la, luchamos contra los moros, rumba la rumba la rumba la, mercenarios y fascistas, ay Carmela, ay Carmela, mercenarios y fascistas, ay Carmela, ay Carmela. El ejército del Ebro, rumba la rumba la rumba la la. La otra noche el río cruzó, ay Carmela, ay Carmela. La otra noche el río cruzó, ay Carmela, ay Carmela. Ya las fuerzas invasoras, rumba la rumba la rumba la. Ya las fuerzas invasoras, rumba la rumba la rumba la. Buena paliza le dio.
There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Do you know of someone that has a problem of self-confidence and or ego-related dysfunctions? Perhaps they're not cool enough at parties. Hi, I'm Alfonso. What's your major? Maybe they dress funny. I just love your overalls. They look great with your high-top sneakers. Or do they do dumb things with their bodies? And now, here's my imitation of a chicken. Nine out of ten doctors prescribe listening to KDVS in Davis, 90.3 FM. The music to become socially graceful. We can hear us just for one day. And we're back. Um, so we've spent all that time talking about, like, you know, sort of what Gary May does and, like, all the repression that, like, you know, these chancellors do. Um, so for like a final question, like, what would it be like if we didn't have a chancellor, if Gary May wasn't doing these bad things, like, what would that look like? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And it's a big question because it really gets to one of the sort of hearts of thinking about abolition, right? What, what does it look like to take away this sort of locus of, of oppressive policy, oppressive action? Um, I think one of the big things um, if I think about a university that looks more free, right, and more um, closer to what we want it to be, um, people would have access to food and housing. Um, and there wouldn't be any questions about that. People wouldn't be left to their own devices um, about that. It wouldn't be factored into the worry about what's going to cost too much um, on the UC's balance sheet. Um I would want to see people being paid a living wage, you know, at at best, right? Of course, these things are all defined within a larger um, economic system. Um, uh, so even saying a living wage, there's sort of certain assumptions about uh, about capitalism that, that are sort of there. But just as a starting point to talk about this, right? Um, and, you know, maybe more more to the point, it's like, if we don't have someone who's this sort of um, bottleneck where policy is sort of being run through, I mean, what would, uh, I guess is answering a question with a question, but um, I'm good at that, which is what would it look like to have the control and the sort of power, the ability to, to make policy or, or promote certain ideas within the UC? What would it look like if all the people within the UC, the workers, the students, the faculty, um, we're sharing that that sort of power, right, to change and make the UC um, into into something that was serving people more broadly, um, rather than it being in the hands of a technocrat who is 
um, serving these particular interests, worried about about profit or worried about um, you know appeasing shareholders, appeasing uh, the the industries that are are going to be financing research, right? Yeah. Um, I think, and you know, I, I want to. There was something about your last point that I wanted to just like elaborate on a little bit um, before Please. Roger goes on to another question, which is like that that model that you're describing is, you know, that is more kind of horizontal and less hierarchical. You know, I think one of the things that often happens, like if you're talking to people from a sort of abolitionist perspective and, you know, just sort of sounding them out, seeing how they feel about it, trying to get them on board. Like what you'll often hear is like, well, that's just really naive, right? Like people can't, oh, yeah. people can't actually like sort of collaborate on things like they, you know, people sort of naturally fall into like, you know, configurations where somebody has to be in charge and everybody wants somebody to be in charge. And it's really naive of you to like, you know, to think that things could happen in that horizontal kind of way. But I feel like, you know, I think it's important to point out, I mean, just um, to, you know, kind of emphasize and underline like some of the things that you've been saying in this conversation, you know, the real naivete is like thinking that these leaders are actually like, people to look up to who have the organization's interests at heart, who have like the people's interests at heart, right? I mean, to not understand like the the performance, you know, um, that's being really carefully put together when you look at, as you were saying, this, you know, this sort of, um, you know, this is really carefully managed, like affability of, you know, of the chancellor. And, you know, like that's the, so it's, it's, you know, that always kind of drives me a little bit crazy. It's the people who are like, you know, very unwilling to admit their own naivete about that, who are the first ones to kind of say, like, well, you're, you know, the kind of vision that you're talking about, right, the kind of horizon you're talking about is the one that is unrealistic. Right. Um, And, you know, it's funny, too, because it's like, I know what, like, I get incredible social anxiety, anxiety being around people. Like, I know what it feels like to say, like, oh, it's hard to come together with people and figure out how to do stuff, especially if there's not a sort of hierarchical framework already in place for doing something. So doing things like organizing, whatever, Mm -hmm. it's very challenging. Mm -hmm. But I also am able to recognize that I'm a subject that's been created within a society that, you know, does do things like venerate and, and, um, obey, you know, leaders or, um, Mm -hmm. and doesn't teach us how to do these things. Mm -hmm. Right. But we are, just incredibly uh, um, adaptable um, creatures, humans, right? We are so able to learn and live, and you can just look around the world. It's not like throughout history people haven't lived in or still don't live in very uh, infinite array of different social organizations, right? So, of course, we know this is possible. so at that point, I'm able to see that it's sort of like, okay, even if I know this is challenging or that's a significant challenge to sort of make this kind of change, it doesn't mean it's not completely possible. Mm-hmm. We're talking about people and, and the people you're talking to, right, this sort of position of, you know, the abolitionist is being naive. Um, uh, those people are coming from that position where they are understanding reality, right, understanding the rational um, the real, the possible, um, from a perspective of what's been given to them, mm-hmm. from the perspective of what has been presented as the only possible option, which, of course, always includes police. 
um, always includes the need for for punitive um, measures of control, um, and always uh, you know requires um, that yeah, like you say, um, that there's a hierarchical structure for decision making and that kind of thing. Um, but you know, people are people have a lot of capacity. Um, for a lot different, and and that's certainly not naive, right? That's mm-hmm. that's the sort of aspirational, um, optimistic part of abolition, right there. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for coming on, especially to talk about sort of what Gary May does on this university and what it would be like without Gary May, especially because not just the absence of Gary May, but what we are, what everyone minus Gary May is in the <laughs> university, what makes the university the university. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Um, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for letting me babble. Um, and thanks for, for doing the show. It's It's been really great. Um, it's awesome. Thank you. Awesome. That was, it was really great to talk to Nestor, um, always so thoughtful. Um, and uh, yeah, so um, we are gonna, so when we come back, I'm just, you know, I'm just kind of processing that conversation. Um, and when we come back, we're, you know, as we said at the top of the show, gonna move like way outward from UC Davis to um, things that have been happening in an entirely other country lately. And we're gonna start with a little bit of a timeline, a, like a little bit of a historical timeline, and then talk about what's been going on recently. And I want to, I'm hoping we can kind of think through like how this sort of local and global kind of interact with each other. Um, that may be, I don't know, we'll see, we'll see how we do. But um, yeah, but we will, you know, but we'll continue this conversation. After the break, this is KDVS 90.3. We are so happy uh, that you are with us and listening and we'll be back after this break. Te souviens-tu qu'autrefois dans la plaine, tu détourna un sabre de mon sang sous les drapeaux d'une mère chérie, nous de jadis nous avons combattu, je m'en souviens car je te vois la vie, mais toi soldat, dis-moi t'en souviens-tu. Je m'en souviens car je te dois la vie, mais toi soldat, dis-moi t'en souviens-tu, mais toi soldat, dis-moi t'en souviens-tu, te souviens-tu de ces jours trop rapides où le français a tant de renom, te souviens-tu Dis-moi, soldat, dis-moi, t'en souviens-tu 
winter, the cost of heating your home could account for nearly half of your energy bill. Hi, I'm Big Sammy, and here are a few steps you can take to save money and make your home more energy efficient. First, give your home furnace or heat pump a checkup to ensure it's running as efficiently as possible. Proper insulation in the attic ceilings, floors, cross spaces, and exterior and basement walls can save you up to 30% on home energy bills. Or installing a programmable thermostat will ensure you, you don't pay for energy you aren't using. Program the thermostat that down to 65 degrees for eight hours a day to reduce your heating bill up to 10 percent you have the power to make a difference and to reduce your home energy bills for more information please visit www.doe.gov hello um so now we're going into our next segment where we're going to be talking about uh specifically what's been going on in paris um, but we're going to start first with the timeline of some sort of just the history. Um, so we're going to go back to like the 1960s. Um, and one of the key things about the 1960s uh, is so this is like the decolonial period. Like France no longer has this the same sort of colonial rule over its colonies. It still has a lot of power and influence over them. But it's uh, obtained uh, specifically from, like, its former colony, Algeria. It's uh, obtained a lot of, like, the workforce, a lot of people from this former colony. And they're now, like, living in parts of France, uh, specifically the suburbs uh, called the Banyu. Um, and so, like, starting at the 1960s, but also you see this more in the 1970s, uh, the the politics, the French politics, the French state is very racist, um, and the political parties essentially use the police to sort of keep uh, these immigrants and these um, these uh, groups in the banyus. Uh, they use the police to sort of keep them in one place and make sure that they don't have a form of like social like ch uh, changing their place on the social hierarchy. So they're trying to maintain these racial boundaries. Um, and there's a lot of opposition to this throughout time, but we especially see in 2005, there's these Knights of Rage riots. Um, so the, uh, so there's the police killing of Lamin Dieng, but then also what really happens, uh, at, during these Knights of Rage, what really sparks it off is Ziad Bena and Buna Traor. Um, these two youths are chased by the police. They're just on their way home, going through like a construction site. Someone calls the cops on them and they're chased into a power plant where they're then electrocuted. Um, 
And the people protesting are primarily students, a lot of youths from the Banyu. Um, and... You want me to jump in? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So we're we're kind of moving closer and closer to the present. And I think one thing, you know, that's probably worth mentioning for listeners who, um, you know, have, have maybe not been tracking French political history. Like there's, you know, there, there's a tradition of protest and direct action, labor action in France that, you know, that the, the kind of integrates it a little bit more fully into society than I think is, you know, than, than is often the case in the U.S. Like everybody in France, like, I have this a strike and, you know, like somebody's always striking about something, you know, like they're very accustomed to um, stoppages and, you know, direct actions that are kind of drawing attention to injustice. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we, you know, I think there are some important distinctions that get drawn between those kinds of actions that are sort of primarily for uh, kind of white French middle class working, you know, people, the the kinds of people who are going to expect pensions potentially, you know, thinking about, like, as some of you probably know, there's been a lot of protests recently about um, cutting pensions. Um, so there's, you know, that's one kind of thing. And then you also have these, these um, protests that are, you know, uh, that are much more directly connect or connected in a different kind of way to this specifically kind of racist colonialist history. And so that's what we're really focusing on today. And so Roger is talking about, you know, this longer history of um, France's uh, colonial past and the way that it affects, the, you know, how they sort of configure things in the present and the way that laws get, you know, laws get passed. And so, um, and, you know, uh, Part of the reason that Roger is also bringing up these riots that happened in 2005, um, which are also, you know, riots about the police killings of black and brown people, you know, so it's, you know, so it's worth our also considering as well that, you know, we think about, we think about the, you know, the George Floyd uprising in the summer of 2020 as an important moment in American politics um, for, you know, for that particular cause. Um, but we have this kind of earlier moment, you know, 15 years before in France. Um, and, you know, a couple of interesting things about that 2005 moment that I want to mention also, because I think they're, you know, they might be relevant to what we talk about later, is that, as Roger was saying, you have kind of, a, a, a you know, a, a category of student protesters who are, again, you know, kind of middle, upper class, you know, um, privileged in various ways. And then you have these protesters from the Bolivia, from the suburbs, which in France are, uh, places where people who are poorer um, and are immigrants are sort of pushed out into, so out of the center of the city and into these suburban areas. And, you know, the student protesters and the Bonlier protesters uh, are not always kind of acting in solidarity with each other, you know. So that's also something, you know, so we, uh, Nestor was talking a little earlier about, like, you know, we were talking about kind of the challenges of organizing horizontally, of getting people to kind of, you know, work together, see each other's, you know, see, see each other's place in a broader struggle. And, you know, so it's always important to kind of acknowledge the difficulty of that. And that's something that comes up here as well. Um, but one other thing that um, also, I think, related to what Nestor was talking about that I thought was really interesting about um, uh, the, these 2005 protests was that the parents of the youths who were killed actually um, refused to meet with the home secretary, with like the sort of major politician, because he had earlier said these really kind of derogatory things about people who lived in the Bonlieu in the suburbs. And so they just weren't going to meet with him. And that, you know, that's something that um, I think is always worth paying attention to in the U.S. context as well. You know, the difference between um, in Ferguson, 
like Michael Brown's mother just saying, like, burn it down, you know, uh, versus like you also have um, a lot of instances where people who are, you know, in these states of like severe, you know, kind of grief and shock, you know, having their having their children kind of taken away from them, murdered by the police end up, you know, um, kind of pushed into collaborating with the state, right? You know, telling people to be peaceful, you know, kind of, you know, wanting to kind of go through judicial processes, that kind of thing. And so I, you know, so this raised an important point also, I think for, you know, this always useful for people who are trying to think through police abolition to pay attention to, like how are, you know, um, how is the reaction to the police murder uh, sort of reincorporating itself into the state's solutions for it versus, you know, how is it, um, uh, how is it refusing that? You know, how is it actually, you know, engaging something else entirely? Um, so, yeah, so I just wanted to kind of bring up those themes. Um, Roger, you had mentioned here a law in 2017. Did you want to talk a little bit about that before we move to the present day? Yeah. So this sort of just prefaces the what happened, like, in the present, like, only a couple weeks ago. But essentially, um, in what, like, what sort of how we get into where France is now is in 2017 they passed a law this happened after the charlie hebdo attacks and like it was sort of that rationale that fear-mongering of oh if the police had these powers to be more aggressive then you know all sorts of crime would be solved or like if we just had more violent police the charlie hebdo attacks wouldn't have happened um so that's sort of how this law gets passed but essentially what this law is um, is it authorizes, it allows an officer to fire their pistol, their uh, service weapon, if an individual refuses to cooperate. Um, and we see a very direct correlation after this law gets passed. As, um, in the years following, the police killings of young black and Arab men literally double. And in one year, um, I think it was 2019, it uh, almost essentially tripled. Um and so, like, we can also just sort of see, like, how, like, the police like to run this narrative of, oh, if the police only had more power, if the police were only more violent, we would not have, you know, bad things. But yet, nothing changes, and instead, the police just kill marginalized people, um, which is sort of how we get into what's happening now. Um, so, what's what's been going on in France, essentially... Uh, this year, June 27th, Nahal Muzak, um was essentially executed by motorcycle cops. Uh, the cops were like, you know, said like they possibly that he possibly had a weapon, stuff like that. But in the video, the cops essentially just walk up to his car and they just shoot him. Um, and... Yeah, and one of the reasons why, like, it's gone and so so much has been going on is because, like, so similar to the U.S., just, like, the accessibility of cameras nowadays, like, this went viral as soon as that video was released. Yeah, and, you know, so, and then kind of, a you know, s sort of following that path of, um, 
uh, similarities, you know, you then see almost immediately after really, really kind of vehement, vicious um, repression of any kind of protest, right, of this, you know, um, of this horrible murder where you have like over 3,000 people arrested in, you know, in protests um, and uh, and a gigantic number of police officers. Um, I see here it said 45,000 officers were mobilized, you know, um, in this uh um, in the in the attempt to kind of squelch this protest. And so these are all things that, you know, in a lot of ways we um, are familiar to us here in the United States, right? You know, not only the kind of gigantic police response, but also the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the discourse of like the increased ability to see, you know, see evidence of um, these murders happening because they are filmed there, uh, during these protests. There were posters and and one and people interviewed who you know kind of asked that question directly, like how many more of these murders by police uh, have happened that have been unrecorded for years and years. And that's obviously you know a question that we ask ourselves in the United States as well with our long history of lynchings and you know other um, other kinds of um, anti-black violence, anti-indigenous violence that you know that have just gone you know that that have just gone sort of silent and unrecorded by by cops and by, you know, those who um, want to kind of uphold what cops are upholding. Um, so so what we're you know, so what we're starting out with here is a kind of brief account of, um, you know, uh, some of these moments when France has dealt with both um, murderous police and the uh, reality of um, black and brown people as targets of these, you know, of these murders. Um, and these are things that we find, you know, um, sort of similar and familiar in certain ways. Um, but I think what we want to do after when we come back after the break is just spend a little bit of time talking about um, how they're different, like how, you know, like what what goes on in France, it's a little bit different from what goes on in the US and how they're how those police forces are structured um, a little bit differently, just as a way to kind of think a bit more um, uh, about how we, uh, you know, get rid of both those systems, right? That but you know, that will be helpful. So we're going to take another uh, brief musical break and then come back and talk about that for a couple minutes.
Women's Health Specialists offers free and low-cost health care. Are you looking for health care but have no insurance? Women's Health Specialists is a women-run clinic that provides free gynecological and birth control services to help women make the best health care decisions. Women's Health Specialists is now located at 1750 Wright Street at Alta Arden in Sacramento. For information, call 916-451-0621 or visit their website at www.womenshealthspecialists.org. Local Bag picks the coolest music. I just always love it. Everything that they pick. Okay, so we are back. Um, this is No Police Radio on KDVS 90.3. I am Odette, and I am swanning in to talk a little bit about uh, French policing. And I'm going to kind of start with a caveat. I am not an expert on French policing at all, but I am writing a book on the history of the sheriff as an Anglo-American uh, kind of, you know, institution of policing. And so it was really, so in kind of researching um, what we were going to talk about today and these recent actions in France, it was really interesting to kind of, you know, learn a little bit about the history of French policing because it helped me to think about how um, the French model and the U.S. model, you know, kind of overlap, but also differ in certain ways. And so I want to just throw some of those thoughts out there. And um, Roger can kind of jump in with, you know, whatever might occur to them about this. So one thing that um, I think is uh, kind of useful to point out is so two things about French policing. One is, you know, just to come back to what Roger was saying earlier, it um, it definitely reflects this uh, very strong imperative to kind of recontrol the you know colonial possession recontrol what had been colonial possession find you know find ways to do that and I think related to that also is that um, the policing system that kind of was established in the 19th century that is now what you know what French policing is is very very top down like very pyramidal very hierarchical it kind of comes from a really strong centralized place and then moves outward and downward from there um which is a little bit different from the history of english policing which is where you know which is really the model for um american policing in a lot of ways where uh there's this much more um present sort of conflict between trying to assert power at local levels um and you know on the one hand and then you know kind of central authority on the other so there's always a sort of strong expression of of local authority in um, the Anglo-American policing model that's a little bit different uh, from the French one. And one of the things that occurs to me about that um, that is, uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just sort of thinking out loud about about these about you know what what that means and kind of where we go with that. Um, we were talking a little bit more about surveillance, you know, um, when we were talking about. Uh, Gary May and about administrators as cops who, you know, do a lot of surveilling. And that's, you know, surveillance is something that really kind of characterizes or defines like the French policing model. Like my sense is that they really want to know like what, you know, um, who, you know, what's going on and who are, you know, who's doing these things. Like I was reading one article about these most recent protests and one of the ways that they get, um, one of the ways they get talked about by law enforcement is, you know, this is um, not random, right? Not autonomous. This is, you know, this is all being kind of coordinated by someone and we have to find out who it is, you know? So the mindset is that there's like something behind this that we have to, we have to figure it out. So surveillance is really important in the French model. Um, the English model, like one, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like, I think one of the things that really characterizes um, England and then America in policing, and this is going to be a familiar idea to a lot of you as well, is the kind of tendency to create 
fear where fear was not necessary, you know? So um, we talked a few months ago about the book that Stuart Hall and some co-collaborator um, of his wrote called Policing the Crisis. And that book um, talks about the idea that mugging, like the concept of mugging, is a kind of constructed idea to bring fear to people, you know, to kind of, it's a, it's a sort of, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's sort of a, like, a, like an imagined way of thinking about how crime happens, you know, um, that then the police are able to turn into something real, you know, um, you know, so we can think about something like broken windows policing in a similar way, right? The idea that, oh, I see that, you know, this is a neighborhood where crime could happen or these, these visible things sort of encourage crime. And then the police let you think there's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, sort of thing going on there. Um, and, you know, it seemed like in both of those um, instances, you know, those are those are really sort of savvy, useful ways to actually um, allow the policing model to have as much control as possible, right? Because the surveillance model does work really well with this kind of, top, you know, you're at the bottom surveilling and you're spying and you're sending it up to the top, right? You know, um, whereas this sort of, on the ground, like generation of, you know, fear, things you need to be afraid of, you know, um, one tiny crumb of fentanyl or like, you know, <laughs> or the, you know, the or, um, yeah, you know, the broken windows or all that stuff, like that becomes a way to sort of use, you know, this more um, localized across the board kind of model for policing and asserting authority, you know, um, to uh, to maintain control. So that was really, you know, so I just I found that kind of I was just sort of thinking about that as I was doing this reading. And, you know, so you can see how um, adaptive, you know, and it's Nestor was talking about how people are really adaptable, you know, um, and this is like the strength, like this is the thing that makes us think things could be really different. It's also the thing that, you know, um, makes us see how like these, you know, these systems of power are adaptable as well, you know, and can, you know, and kind of um, can kind of take advantage of their own structures, you know, to to increase their, you know, to increase their own power. Um, so, yeah, so I was thinking about that, you know, um, as just a way that we might kind of recognize some particularities of these French and Anglo-American models, you know, the better to kind of target what they're doing, like the better to, you know, be really clear about how they are manipulating us, you know, and, and push back at them. Um, but I think it's also like we may want to say um, a little bit too. I know, Roger, you were thinking about um, colonialism and about the sort of creation of, you know, spaces that are sort of not France within France. And I wondered if you wanted to talk about that a little bit as a strategy as well. Yeah. Like, not to say, like, France is any different when it comes to, like, policing being based off colonialism, because the U.S. is very much a, has a settler colonial police force in that regard, too. Um, but in France, it's very much, you see, with, like, especially with Algeria, there's... Um, it sort of plays into the idea of like folk halls boomerang where if you have like a stronger like what gets used in your colonies will end up coming back uh to your like home state um and we see that sort of like because the system of colonialism it it needs to extract like you know the wealth or the value or the labor from the state of algeria or everyone in algeria but as it's um, after like the 1960s, as it's pulling this workforce from Algeria to work into France, um, it still wants to extract and exploit their labor in this colonial system. So it basically has to recreate the colony within side France specifically for uh, these uh, the groups uh, Algerian immigrants. Um, 
So that's sort of what we see. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, too, like, I mean, something else to mention about this, you know, Roger mentioned the Bonlia a couple of times as, you know, these uh, these sorts of these um, exurban neighborhoods, you know, which is where immigrants often are in France. And, that you know, and that's really different from the way things work in the U.S., right, where, you know, in the U.S. it tends to be like the city, the sort of centers of the cities, which is where people who don't have money and people who don't have, you know, um, people people who don't have some of the things that they need to, you know, get sort of pushed into. And whereas, like, white people flee, right, you know, out to the out to the suburbs. And so that's, you know, and I was I was thinking about that, too, and about the way that, like, you know, European cities like Paris, I mean, they have been like working on their white supremacy literally since the Roman Empire, right? Like, it's, you know, so, so, you know, there's, a, I mean, I, I wonder about the extent to which like the, um, the kind of um, cultural embeddedness of that, you know, makes the sort of city, allows the city center to maintain that kind of power or value, you know, um, as this kind of civilizational, you know, center. And so so it becomes, po- you know, so it becomes possible to kind of push immigrants out to the suburbs, whereas like in the U.S. we have this sort of English model of like, you know, my lawn, my land, right? You know, <laughs> and, you know, and um, and so you see this kind of flight to the suburbs. I don't know. I mean, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. I'm not, you know, I'm, I mean, I, I, I'm not totally just thinking out loud. I am kind of, you know, working on this uh, in, a, in a slightly more responsible and sustained way for a book. But I mean, some of this we're just I think we're just kind of, you know, riffing and thinking about, you know, where to where to go with some of these things. Um, but, you know, and so I think the like the, the question that we sort of have to end with here is, you know, how like, again, you know, what does this help us to think about in terms of ways to push back at this? Because, you know, in the end, the result is the same, right? Like it's, you know, um, it's, it's, it's basically this kind of uh, carefully engineered premature death, right? As, you know, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls it, of black and brown people in this carceral realm um, in order to, you know, as Nestor and as Roger were talking about, um, to preserve these systems, these systems of whiteness and these systems of wealth. So, you know, so we're just sort of throwing out some ideas here to, you know, maybe some of this has, maybe all of it has already occurred to you, but maybe some of it has not, you know, <laughs> um, and, you know, and maybe some of that will be helpful. Okay, we have just a couple of minutes left. So I think maybe we should just shift right into our last segment. So um, Roger has been really wanting to talk about um, this week's bad cop because, uh, yeah, well, I'll let Roger talk about that. Yeah. So coming back uh, sort of to the U.S., uh, you know, we were sort of talking about like how um, in the U.S., like compared to France, like, you know, we see more of this like heavy policing of like. Uh, marginalized groups specifically within the city so um for this uh show's bad cop we're talking about san francisco police department um and if you did it if you haven't heard uh essentially like two days ago uh sfpd arrested over a hundred people for skateboarding um uh, if you don't know, like, uh, SF has this annual thing called the Hill Bomb where they go over to Dolores Park, Dolores Street, and they basically, they get on their skateboards, they get on their bicycles, and they just go down the hill because, you know, SF, it's known for hills. Going down a hill is really fun because you go really fast. Um, and essentially what happened is, so, like, the SFPD... Um, they were planning this out like they already had their cops on the ground in riot gear they were staging they had boxes full of zip ties and essentially what they did is they cleared out the event they basically said oh you have this wonderful like you know annual community event 
no, you don't. And they walked in, they were pointing uh, rubber bullets, like, you know, rubber bullet guns at people. Um, and in the end, they ended up corralling and they kettled like this big group of just youths and like, and then they just started arresting everyone. And specifically, according to their statement, they arrested 81 people under the age of 18 and 32 people 18 and up. Um, and they charged them with three misdemeanors. So inciting a riot conspiracy and failure to disperse. Um, and like, of course, like these kids have parents and the police were like, yeah, we'll release your kid within the hour, but they were holding them out in like the SF cold for like several hours, like four hours, um, processing them and then just dumping their kids on the street at like 4 AM, two to 4 AM in the morning. And it's just... so, yeah, that is why <laughs> SFPD is this show's bad cop. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. That is why they are garbage. And I'm going to say like, a. Uh, very quick thing about our good project this week, which is an eviction defense um, in Eugene, Oregon. And the reason I want to make sure to mention it is that in addition to cops being garbage, the other category of human that's garbage is landlords, right? Like we, I mean, I've, I've had some experiences recently that have <laughs> convinced me even more fully than, you know, if I, if I needed more convincing. Landlords are garbage. And so I'm always glad to see people make the lives of landlords miserable. So this was um, a woman and her kids who was being threatened with eviction. And actually the... Um, the defenders um, won, right? Managed to, you know, managed to um, get everyone to get the, get the cops to stand down. And the single mom and her children were put back into the home. Um, and so, uh, you know, so this this defense has been continuing successfully. Um, this community is, you know, just sort of working together. And, you know, here we and here it is like we've got an example of a community working together, like over and across their various like particular interests to help out with a, you know, with something that's like bigger than all of them. So I'm very glad to see like um, a situation in which both the cops and the landlords are the big losers. So um, that is that is this week's good project. And our amazing producer, Local Bag, is going to take us out with um, the song with Ceramic, which was a request, I believe, by um, Roger. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. So this is a host request. And uh, yeah, so it was great to be with you all. Um, take care. And we will see you in a couple of weeks. And Roger, you want to take us out? Just say goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>